Roger Abramson is visiting us here in the studio. And being Black History Month, Roger, I invited you in because you were very active in the 60s. And I want these stories to be told. So welcome to WLRN. Thank you. I'm pleased to be here. Uh, You are 88 years old? That's correct. And uh, back in the 60s, what were you doing? Well, going back to the, actually, the 50s, I became very involved as a concert producer, an event planner, and so my services became very valuable because I could put things together like fundraising events and uh, different types of boycotts and protests. Were you an organizer? I was definitely an organizer, yes. What does putting on concerts have to do with civil rights? Well, it's interesting. Uh, I was, say, putting on a concert as an example with, say, Bob Dylan or Joan Baez, who at the time were very politically active. So in order to do these concerts, I would make an arrangement with them to give a portion of the proceeds to whatever charity at the time. At the time, I think it was the United Negro College Fund. And so I was able to put on a show and give a good portion of it to one of these great charities. What was the name of your production company? Well, it was named various times. It was quite often under my own name, Roger Abramson Presents, and then it was Atlantic Presentations, and later on it became A Friend, A Friend Productions, which was my favorite name. And what area did you put on these shows? Well, I put the shows on in the Midwest. That was primarily where I did it. Later, it kind of continued on, maybe into the East Coast and New York and throughout, you know, cities like Buffalo and Rochester and Pittsburgh and various cities, uh, Detroit. But uh, originally it was in, like, Cincinnati and Dayton and Columbus and Cleveland. Is that where you're from? Yes. And what were you doing? Were you a student when you put on these shows? Well, you know, I originally had gone to the Cincinnati Conservatory of Music. I was a bass player. As a matter of fact, I was very young. At 14 years old, I was playing in a jazz group. It was a, a group with Odell Jackson and Donald Linder and two very young black musicians. And they were great. And we would go to school, high school, and I was 14 years old. And After school, we would practice for hours in the music room until the janitor made us leave. And pretty soon we started playing gigs, and it was very, very exciting. And it was a real touchstone of my life, for I was dealing in an all-black environment, and it gave me such an insight as to what was going on. And this was way back in 1950 and 49 and throughout those early 50 years. It doesn't sound like you were into folk music, though. Well, no, not that much of folk music. There was a Hutenanny, I think that's what we called it at the time. I had a great relationship with Pete Seeger. Uh, Pete Seeger also came to places where I was doing an event or a protest, and he gave of himself, and his music was so great, and he really got people enthused and about joining and, and being part of this very, very active civil rights and social cause movement. And he was such a big factor. So there were several people like that. Peter, Paul, and Mary I had quite a nice relationship with. And there were several. 
So it, it wasn't the politics of Bob Dylan and Joan Baez that got you interested. It was working with other black musicians. It was originally working with these black musicians, yes. I lived in Cincinnati at the time, originally, and Cincinnati was rather a conservative city. And, and somehow or other, I joined forces with a, a person whose name was Bill Bowen. And Bill Bowen became a senator in Ohio and became one of the most active black civil rights leaders in the state. And certainly he became a close friend and I kind of followed him around in the protests that he was involved with. And that was just so important to me. I, I learned so much. I don't think of Ohio as a place where civil rights protests were. Yes, it's amazing because we went and we had a real impact and an impact that, you know, everybody, you know, we had the marches in Selma, Washington, et cetera. But in Cincinnati, we had such an active community. As a matter of fact, we would go and like I can think of a couple of situations. One is at the public school system where it was de facto segregation. And they just did not take care of the inner city schools at all and the teachers and the principals. And it was horrible. So a group of us, I was chairman of SNCC in the Midwest, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And the four groups that were very active, SNCC and CORE, the Council on Racial Equality, SCLC, Southern Christian Leadership Conference, and NAACP, NAACP, we went and had a protest outside the schools and eventually actually almost closed the schools down. So it became a question where 40% of the students and the teachers no longer went and taught. Instead, we set up an alternative, alternative school site in churches and temples and community centers where these professors from the university or teachers would come and we taught children. And it had such an impact that they finally got together with us, myself and a few other people, and said, okay, what can we do because we cannot run a school system? And we told them what our demands were at the time. And slowly but surely, these demands were made. And it had it was one of the kinds of things that you did. And not only that colorful Washington march, which every, but it was in the local cities throughout the country where there were these group of, of really determined people and you know, people who were middle, upper middle class, white, black, Christians, Jews, Muslims, it made no difference. It was such a community effort. Uh, organizations that you mentioned, uh, SNCC, for instance, they're mostly black organizations. Well, SNCC was my was my organization. Were you the only white person? No, in? it was filled with white people because we were one of our main jobs at SNCC would be the friends of SNCC. In other words, I don't know if people really understand everything about the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. It was run by John Lewis. Who, it was uh, the senator who just passed away. The, yes, the re representative. Representative. I had a great relationship. I have wonderful letters from John Lewis and others. And there were all these great leaderships: Stokely Carmichael and H. Rap Brown and. Julian Bond and Andrew Young and all of these wonderful people who were involved with SNCC. And our main goal, of course, became one man, one vote. And that was what was the really the most important kind of issue, I think, that went on in the, in the South and throughout that period of time. Well, the main thing that people know about are, of course, the three young men. You're talking about the Schwerner, Cheney, and Goodman. This this was the conditions in the South. Yes. These weren't conditions in Ohio. 
more or well, less. Well, in Ohio, there was a de facto segregation. There was a, it was subliminal, but you know, it was amazing the strides we made, even in a place like Cincinnati, Ohio, which was considered very conservative. You know, uh, I can think of a situation where at one point I presented the ballet Africans from Mali. And it was their first tour of this country. And, of course, they had beautiful headdresses and costumes. And so the concert I gave was successful. It was fine. And I decided I want the school children of Cincinnati to be able to go and see this cultural attraction. The black inner city school children in those years had never even considered a cultural attraction like this. So I went to the Board of Education. I'm sorry, but I went to the Board of Education, and they said, no, we want no part of this. We're not going to do this. So I started working, and others started working with all of the inner-city school principals, devoted men and women who worked in the worst kinds of conditions, and they sent out flyers, and they got all of their students. And before you know it, we had enough for two Two sessions, one in the morning, one in the afternoon, one for elementary school children, one for high school children. And the police department said, no, you can't do this because the, the schools are going to be fighting each other. And I said, no, we'll take care of that. And I went to the local black organization that, and I got them to get 25 people to monitor it and everything. And the city, the city music hall didn't want to do it because they said, oh, they're going to damage. And we went. There wasn't one inch of damage. And the place was just sold out, and it was amazing. And afterwards, I had given study guides to all the students and the, the teachers, and they used this to tell people about Mali and Africa. And it was a whole new – and I got literally hundreds of letters from students thanking me for this experience that they had of seeing this. And because before this, the only cultural attractions they had was like, you know, Tchaikovsky, Peter and the Wolf. Well, these children, they didn't know anything about that. And it opened it up. And the, from then on, the school became more diversified in what they presented. Roger Abramson is here in the studio uh, reminiscing about your work back in the 60s in the civil yes. rights. And where did folk music enter into all this? Well, I guess originally folk music could have entered in, in, the fifth, in the late 50s. I remember we had a situation in Cincinnati where they had an amusement park called Coney Island, and they had a huge swimming pool there. They allowed black people into the amusement park, but not into the swimming pool. So we had a started having protests there. And that was a situation where Pete Seeger came down, where so many other folk artists came, and it was a, and it really had an effect on Coney Island. And soon they said, okay, you won. We're going to open up the pools. And they opened up the pools, and not only for Coney Island, but throughout the city of Cincinnati, all of the community pools were now open, regardless of your race. Did you ever travel to the South? I did. I traveled to the South, but I wasn't one of those that really, because there were young people. You know, we, we got people from Harvard and all those wonderful universities that, that and had a thousand young people going to Mississippi or going to Arkansas or these, these places where there was absolutely... Uh, they, they wouldn't even allow them. There was such violence that was going on with these young people. I think people that army... 
should have been as well. We lost three, of course, Schwerner, Goodman, and Cheney. And it was funny, not funny, but it was sad. But we had a retreat in Oxford, University of Miami in Oxford, Ohio, to tell all the young people going down how to act, et cetera. Unfortunately, you know, there was uh, these three men were were murdered. It's it's safe to say there were a lot more people murdered, but two of those three men were white, which made it. Which made the news. Yes, and it was amazing. So I was a member of an organization at the time, a Commercial Law League of America. So I sent a letter to everybody in Mississippi, because that's where they had gone, you know, asking for them to have some compassion for these young people that were coming down there. At the time, they hadn't found them yet. And they sent, and I got the letters here from so many of these lawyers saying, oh, yes, no, why are you coming down here? You're causing problems and violence and et cetera. Keep them up north. You know, quite often at the end of the letter, they said, however, because my name is Abramson, they said, oh, well, I have good Jewish friends. <laughs> You have you brought with you a scrapbook. So well, yeah, it's not as much as a scrapbook as an information book. It's about all of what went on. You know, the correspondence that we had from. You know, I was just a member of the of of that civil rights army, and the leadership would continually send us things, what was happening, where the needs were in various places, and keeping us apprised of everything that would go on. A Mississippi handbook for political programs. I mean, it was just that type of act. Activity. And I, you know, I was inducted as into the Civil Rights Hall of Fame, which is my greatest honor. And I always thought that my induction into this organization was really indicative, not as me, but of all of those white and black people who were working in, you know, right in, you know, to get things done. And I was just a representative of that group. Did the uh, murder of uh, Warner, Cheney, and Goodman, did that change things for you? No. It didn't change things because I was very aware it was very sad. But it wasn't a change because, you know, go back to Till and all those, there were literally hundreds and hundreds of black people that were murdered, hung with horrible crimes at the time. And... uh, it was a time where you had to be aware. You know, here I was. I was white, and I had this obligation. I had this responsibility to take an active role. You got all these letters from these prominent people yes. uh, basically it, saying it's okay. The, the, the situation here is fine. Get away and don't bother us. Yes. Where, did, where do you go from there? Well, that's I never it never even slowed me down. It's a matter I took these letters and I gave them to a friend of mine. His name was Professor Herbert Shapiro. He was a professor of black history, visiting professor at Harvard University. He couldn't get over all these letters and he used them in his book which was called uh, black violence, white response, and it's still on the. It's uh, and it was just to talk about the way people in leadership down there had felt about things. Some of them were very reasonable people, and they came up with ways and whys that whatever they did was okay. It, I, it's it's funny hearing you talk about it now because it seems like we're reliving that now, yes. and uh, we've taken a few steps back. Uh, yes. In civil rights. Yes. 
I think that the recent voting act that that failed to pass is just something that's going to have a horrible impact on our on our democracy. And I see it in the way people run their cities and there is often a subliminal type of racism that goes on that you can't even put your finger on. And, but you feel it. You feel it in the way people are responding. And, and it's not, and quite often people look at a, a black person who is doing great, he has a good job, he's a teacher. Oh, what's the problem? But they're not down in the trenches and understand really and truly what is still going on. It's still denying this critical race theory. It's it's denying our history, basically. Yes, yes, absolutely. It's it's a question of putting it aside and saying, well, you know, not, if you look around, you see the the violence that happened with police departments that are now being brought out in the open. Unfortunately, sometimes the even the liberals go a little too far in the one end, and they say, okay, we're going to defund the police, and then all of a sudden everything else changes, and you're saying, why are they saying that? That's not what we want to do. We want to go and implement and create and, and enhance, you know, the the law enforcement. Go and make social service a more of a part. But instead, it gets people turned off. And, and you see this happening and you think, oh, my. <laughs> Roger Abramson is here uh, at the, in the WLRN studio talking about uh, Black History Month. Yes. And... Uh, did you experience some of this, this divisiveness? Well, you know, I have a very interesting experience. Way back in 1964, when they were passing the Civil Rights Act, I was in, in constant communication with senators. And at the time, they would actually respond to you personally. And I was writing to Senator Robert A. Taft, and the Taft family was probably the most important Republican family in the history of the Republican Party. They were very conservative, but they were dedicated Americans. And they were only, no matter what, they wanted to do the right thing for this country. So Robert Taft writes me this wonderful letter in which he tells me why they should not be voting for this act, all the things that should be in this act, and et cetera. And I'm reading this letter, and all of a sudden I come to the last paragraph of the letter. And he said, however, I am voting for the Civil Rights Act of 1964, and I have told my colleagues, and we are going to support this act. And when I reread this letter today, in this day and age, I think of the divisiveness in our Congress. Today, the Republicans, there would be no Republican that would come out like they came out back in those years. And this was so important to the country at that time. In this, were you drafted in the sixties? No, in the no, I was too old for to be drafted. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Okay. yeah, and I and I also I was married and I had children, so uh, therefore I wasn't eligible. Well, I would be eligible, but they weren't drafting people with children at the time. Even going back to the Korean War, that's when I would have been uh, eligible to be drafted. I, I was always uh, against, I'm against, you know, I'm for peace and against war. <laughs> did, did your civil rights activities interfere with family life? No. As a matter of fact, I was very fortunate. My wife and my family was so supportive. So that when there was a poor people's march, which would come up and they would cover through, and Cincinnati... We were the station. They would sleep over at our house. You know, we ended up having a black 
son who was uh, adopted, but never really officially adopted, but he became a member of our family. That was 50-some years ago, and he's still a member of the family. We still talk to him, and he still thought of my children as his siblings, and it never, and I never allowed it to impact. I, I was on a radio show like this, possibly in the late 50s or 60s, and all of a sudden, the next day, my office, they threw a firebomb at my office. And it, was, it didn't burn anything. It got out in front and et cetera. They went and they would call and give me terrible racist. But this did not affect me. This was, you know, I, I was privileged to be able to, to be so involved in this effort at the time. And we felt such really, uh, there was great progress that was made. Well, being so close to the black community, you must have understood how most of white America felt because they had no idea this was this type of uh, social activity was going on. That's true. And so you would go and uh, you would go and have an event uh, and you would get bring in Dick Gregory and the Freedom Singers and you would go out and raise money and say, look, we need to get money. And people would contribute $5, $10, $25. That was considered a lot of money back then. And people, I don't know, I, I just was always so amazed and felt so good about how much, how many people came forward that didn't know about it. And they would join this movement. And the movement wasn't a hostile movement. It was a progressive movement. It was a positive movement. And that was what was so important. Were there any setbacks? Obviously, along the way, there were many setbacks. And, and, uh, but however, the, I don't know if they were setbacks or just a continuation of what had been going on. And, and you know, you weren't always able to, to be the heroes or et cetera. Uh, but you felt good about that you were there. And, and, and like if the, you were involved with the NAACP, you know, and I would, I would become life membership chairman there and be able to go to prominent doctors in town. And it, it was just a, a coordinated effort. And I was so delighted to be just not delighted, but I felt important to be part of this army that was making these changes. Roger Abramson is in the studio. You never pursued your concert productions. No, I gave that was over. <laughs> you know, at my age, uh, how about and, the Rolling Stones, Bob Dylan? How can you turn that away? Well, you know, I was very fortunate because of the fact that I was at the right place at the right time, and rock and roll in the mid '60s throughout the through the '80s was just so exciting and. You had a real sense of being part of it, and people loved it, and they have all of their great memories of it. But what happened, like everything else, corporate America came into play, and before you know it, Live Nation, not that I hate Live Nation or anything, came, came in, and they bought out every single promoter in every major demo, demographic area, city in the country. And now, all of a sudden, you know, as a promoter previously, you know, you would be on stage and... You would be introducing people and everything would be fine. And there was this real sense of, oh, I'm seeing something for the first time. I remember we, I did the Who tour over Tommy. And that was just amazing. People had never seen a rock opera before. And so, or when I did P Pink Floyd, I remember the quadrasonic sound and the sound overhead. And it was very exciting. And now with Live Nation, all of a sudden, it became very corporate. And every city had, you know, 
10 people doing what you did previously as an entrepreneur. All of a sudden, there were people taking care of the smallest. My daughter, I remember, <laughs> I had a, one of my daughters would go and make brownies for, for uh, the bands backstage. And then she would sell them. For a dollar. <laughs> to the band. <laughs> to the band. And they loved it. So the I remember the, the manager of the Allman Brothers came up to me one time and said, listen, next time we play, in our in the contract, it's going to say the brownies are free. <laughs> <laughs> uh, did you pursue your music, your bass playing? No, I didn't. I, I wish I would. I, as a matter of fact, I have a bass up north, and I keep asking a, a, a sister-in-law. I kind of get up there and... and bring it down here because I would like to start playing again but I, I I did not pursue that I had a you know my my business was that of being a concert producer and presenter and a manager I managed some a couple of well-known people but I was very proud of they achieved great success and that made me very happy uh, you were also an artist because uh, Lincoln Road has two of your sculptures that comes yes. out every Christmas, a, yes. a menorah and a, a dreidel yes. made out of uh, seashells. Yes. Uh, yeah. So, so yeah. You're, you're known for that as well. I, that's so strange. I often said to myself, and when my legacy is going to be to, because I built the world's largest spinning dreidel, <laughs> people, and that has received... For some reason, just, well, I think people always thought, my God, anybody that could put 25,000 seashells one by one. But uh, and as a matter of fact, this year, a friend of mine said they were down in Mexico City. And on CNN, it showed the lighting of the menorah. And I thought, oh, my God. <laughs> Roger Abramson is here in the studio. When did you become a, a Floridian? I became a Floridian in 1986 or 7, 87, I think. And because? Well, um, my the family, some, one of the members of the family came down who had a child. And my wife said, it's time. We had been coming to Florida for years and years. And we said, let's just kind of make the move and and it was and Miami of course and Miami Beach back then was just a wonderful place it, it certainly has changed and uh, you uh, were very active again in the 60s in the civil rights and yes. uh, honored by the Civil Rights Museum yes. in Ohio uh, you uh, any type of reunions do you remember do you keep in touch with these folks yes I do keep in touch with them and I plan on maybe next year after the pandemic I guess it'll be over someday I'm not sure uh, but after I plan on being a guest speaker at one of their uh, installations of inductees. It was a magical time back in the 60s. I thought it was. Why hasn't that repeated? You know, I'm not too, I'm, I'm not too knowledgeable about modern culture. I know with grandchildren and that it's very quick. It, you have to be there. It's only a moment. You don't have too much personal contact. God forbid you call somebody too often. <laughs> you know, it seems like right now people are so involved with the technology of what's going on. And, and I'm not sure if that can be, you know, you need to have a much more of a warm feeling, a warm feeling of trying to correct things. People don't really care i think even with the environment and things like this things that these young people should just be devoting their lives to i'm not, i don't know what's going on there and if they will be able to to really take issues and try to to solve their problems well roger thank you for the work you have done well i appreciate being here thank you for allowing me to be here roger abramson is here uh do you are you 
you don't have a web page or no. nothing like that. No, I, 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 I'm not running for office. I'm not. <laughs> I have, the, you know, I'm just, I'm just delighted to to be able to be around and and to be able to remember some of the things that that went on. And Roger, it's great talking to you. A lot of fun. Thank you so much.